in the Bible. We believe in its inspiration. We believe that it is historically, archaeologically, and theologically accurate. It is our only guidebook for life, and it speaks you know, to this 19th year in the 21st century into our culture and into our society. And so what we're going to do this morning and for the next couple of weeks is I'm going to ask that you look into an Old Testament book with me by the name of Ruth. Now the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, it's, it's the eighth book in the Old Testament as you go forward from the book of Genesis. It's right behind the book of Judges. And uh, it really, really is a good book. Now, here's the challenge I have for you. We just celebrated the, the official first day of summer, right? So I want to give you some summer reading. I want to challenge you every week that we're in this series to read through the book of Ruth. Now, for some of you already going, wait a minute, Bill. How can I read through an entire book in, in just one week? Don't you know how time-consuming that's going to be for me? I've got work. I've got family. You know, I've got time at the gym and everything else. But for those of you not familiar with this, Ruth is a very, very short book. It's only got four chapters. And if you were to sit down and read it, it would only take you about 15 minutes to read through the book of Ruth. So I want you to put that on your weekly to-do list. It's a short story that's good. Actually, I believe it's better than any TV reality show. It has pretty much anything and everything you'd want to watch in a show. It's got a story that expresses the power of love. You see tragedy, you see death, you see greed, you see hope rising out of some pretty tough circumstances. But you're going to see God work through those circumstances as well. You'll see hope rising out of some dark storms. And, and I guarantee you, friends, you'll have a sense. This is a book that everyone can relate to. See, God wants to be involved in your life. Let that sink in. He wants to be involved in your life and on more than any given Sunday. He wants to be involved in your life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and yes, even on Sunday. But to set up the story here, most of you have opened, if you have the scripture, to the book of Ruth. We're going to go back to the page right before that at the end of the book of Judges, that seventh book of the Old Testament. Because it sets up the stage for us spiritually and culturally when it says this in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, some translations, like the Living Bible says, everyone did whatever he thought was right, whatever was right in their own eyes. How many of you use that phrase in your daily conversation, whatever? You know, I'll, I'll guarantee you, if you've got teenagers or if you've got grandchildren, they use the word whatever all the time in their conversation. In fact, I use it. My mom, who's 90 years old, spoiler alert, she uses the word whatever in her conversation. I'll call, Mom, did you take your medicine today? Yes, whatever, I took my medicine, Bill. Mom, did you eat today? Yes, I had a little Debbie and a pot of coffee. Whatever, you know, I'm taking care of myself. And it usually means I'm doing okay. 
I'll do things my way, you do things your way. Uh, We get to that point in the book of Ruth that the entire nation, the spiritual direction of the nation is, is consumed by whatever. Hey, if it's right for you, it's okay for you. If it's right for me, it's okay for me. If it's wrong for you, it's wrong for you. But that doesn't mean it's wrong for me. And friends, you talk about something that's relevant for our culture today. That's Israel, but that's our life today. You know, they and we live by that outback steakhouse mantra, no rules, just right. In our culture today, you can't tell people what you think is wrong. In our culture, you can't tell each other what is right because if it's right, it's right for you. And if I define my life by my own spiritual direction, I'm going to flounder. And if we do that as a nation, we're going to flounder. And we could see that in Israel. We could see that in the United States of America. A nation on the brink, as the news constantly tells us. It's because of what Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 5.20. When he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And friends, understand this. You can read all through the Constitution of the United States, and nowhere will you see that the president, whoever he or she might be, you'll never find that the president is to be our spiritual leader. Never will you see that. Because the spiritual leader of God's people is God. It's Jesus Christ. That's why he gets to declare what's right and what's wrong. And it's not just what's true for our nation. It's true for what should go globally as well. And Jesus Christ, as our leader, places us, you and me, in the middle of the darkness to bring light. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. We see a lot of darkness We see a lot of tragedy, but guess what? God's people show up and shine through. And let me just say this too. In this dark season for Israel, when they're doing whatever they want to do, whenever they choose to do what they want to do, life falls apart. Isn't that true for us as well? When we choose our own path, when we do what we want to do, life starts to unravel at the seams. Proverbs 16.25 says it this way, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Whatever we have, whoever we have in the top spot, if it isn't God, our lives, our families, our church will fall apart. Now as we get into Ruth this morning, I want to give you the big idea that's going to govern the rest of my message this morning, and that is this. Friends, your personal choices have eternal implications. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're doing, what your day-to-day plans are within your life. Your personal choices will have eternal implications. The stakes are just that high. The book of Ruth begins with a man by the name of Elimelech. And by his name, you would think he's firing on all cylinders. His name, Eli, is from Elohim, it means my God. And Melech is the word for king in Hebrew. So my God is king. With a name like that, how can you go wrong? 
but he takes his family that's living in the city of Bethlehem. Now, who else in the Bible is from Bethlehem? Say his name out loud. Jesus is from Bethlehem. Elimelech and his wife and his two sons live in Bethlehem, but he, he scoops them up and he moves to the region of Moab in spite of the fact that Israel and Moab are enemies. They're constantly struggling with each other, but Elimelech has a tough choice to make. As he cares for his family, guys, he's got a tough call to make. And I want you to look at your outline this morning as we go through these first verses in Ruth, because we all face choices every day of our life. And we need to keep in mind, I think, these three truths that are really key to each of us. And the first one is this, and it may sound simplistic, but God will be there during our tough choices. He'll be there through our tough choices. Elimelech, as I said in the story, has some tough choices to make. Read with me in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now here's what you need to know about Moab. Moab is a fringe country. It's on the edge of the Fertile Crescent Valley and the desert. But it's a place where things are growing, and it's a great place to live if there's a famine in your own country. It's a great place to go when your pantries are bare, when the refrigerator's empty, and you've got to have food to survive. So the, first, the decision for Elimelech to move to Moab, it's not a spiritual decision in his mind. It's a survival decision. But there's more to it. You see, there's a whole nation that stays. And the question is, in his mind, do I stay here and starve to death with God's people? Or do I pack everyone up and move to Moab where we'll have food on our table, but our faith will be existing in the midst of some pretty nasty circumstances? Can the faith of my family survive in such a negative and truly godless part of the country? And not only that, look what goes on to happen in his life. You ever have a decision like his where it seems like a no-win situation? That whatever you choose is kind of going to be a lose-lose situation? One of those, do I stay here and starve to death with my family? Or do I move somewhere where my faith might be in peril? But in the midst of all this, they move to Moab, and it isn't long that they're there when Elimelech dies. So now, we have Naomi and her two boys wondering, what are we going to do? Now how are we going to put food on the table? How in the world are, are we going to make it? And no doubt, Naomi was in the midst of some pretty deep grief. Some of you have been in the midst of some very real grief in this past year. It's been said that statistically grief is worse during what time of the year? Christmas. 
Thanksgiving, New Year's, the holidays. But let me tell you from experience, I think grief as it is at its worst, January through December. <laughs> because for some of you, every day is a struggle to wake up. Whether it's the cold winter months or the, the longer days of summer. Knowing that that special someone is not in their chair. Knowing that there's an empty spot at my dinner table. It's a struggle just to get through the day. You know, grief is a daily reality that you've got to live with. And friends, God understands it. God gets grief. It's right here in Ruth chapter 1 as we see this mother and her two sons with tears in their eyes. But you find God's love even still in the midst of tragedy. And even though Naomi may question why, God is still there. God is still with her, caring for her. He will not leave her, and he won't leave you. He won't walk away from you when tough decisions are made. Some of you know the scripture of the 23rd Psalm. You were taught to, to memorize it and quote it from childhood, and you know that fourth verse. Even though I walk through the, the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You know he'll be with you through the darkest of days, the darkest of valleys. Ruth chapter 1, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. She feels alone. I was talking with Debbie Trimbley recently. You guys know Debbie Trimbley very well. She actually had a chance to come from Virginia Beach to be at the wedding, too. And most of the time, she does pretty well. But she said there was a day she was cleaning house, and it just kind of hit her in her love for Dan and, and missing him as he passed, as he did from the cancer he had. And she was angry at him. She felt abandoned. How, how could you leave me? And I wonder if Naomi felt that way as well. Here I am with two boys in a foreign country. This is not my home. Elimelech, why didn't you take better care of yourself, you know? Why, could, why, why did you leave me this way? And she may have even felt abandoned by God in that moment. But let me say this. If you feel that you've been abandoned, it's a normal feeling. It really is. And even though you feel you're all alone, even though you feel life is unfair, God is there, and he wants to draw closer to you in this month or this year and whatever it might be to show you his strength, his care, his guidance, his counsel, his protection every step of the way. And God wants to use your tragedy. He wants to recycle your hurt, your tough spot as a vehicle to draw you closer to him. And when you have the question of, Okay, that's exactly what I expect a preacher to say. How can that ever happen? Talk to God about that. Take that question to God. God, how are you going to bring something good from this pain in my life? Here's the second thing that we need to all remember. When we've got decisions, God's going to be with us when we make the tough decisions, but God's also going to be with us when we make poor decisions. Now, looking back at, at Elimelech's story from 2019, it's easy to say, where was your faith, man? 
Why didn't you stay in Israel? Why didn't you trust God to take How could you have made such a stupid choice anyway? What were you thinking? But here's why Elimelech made a, a very poor decision. After he dies, his two sons marry girls from outside of the faith. And you might think that's not, not so big a deal. But, but look what it says here again in verse 4. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, an unfortunate name, not Oprah, okay? Don't change what the Bible says. But, but, but a parent that gives a child the name Orpah, it, it sounds like a whale to me. I don't know why. But anyway, and, and the other was Ruth. And they, after they'd lived for about 10 years, and we'll pause the story there, what's the big deal about this? Friends, they're Moabites. The Moabite people, they didn't believe in the one true God that Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons believed in. They believed in a multiplicity of little g gods. And now Naomi's sons, they're bringing this into their home. They knew as well as you and I know today what God had said from that mountain in Exodus chapter 20. When he said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them and worship them for I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. And here's the big deal. The problem isn't that these girls are from a different ethnicity. The big deal is, again, they're worshiping these false little g gods. In fact, if you've read in the Old Testament, you know one of their chief gods was the god Chemosh. And Chemosh was a god that was celebrated with the gift of sacrifice. And Moabites were known to take their little boys and their little girls and sacrifice them in the fire to this god Chemosh. And Naomi's boys now, and taking these women into their homes, they're inviting that kind of paganism into their home as well, even though they're raised to believe in the one true God. Malon and Kilion marry, and, and God's not happy. In fact, friends, God is never happy when you marry outside of the faith. And don't miss this. God still, in spite of the poor choice they made, He's still going to use this for his glory and for their good. And maybe you, you're here today and that's exactly what you need to hear. Because anybody here like me this morning, anybody here ever make a mistake? I mean, let me see with a show of hands. How many of you have made a mistake just this week? Raise your hands. All right, yeah, get in line behind me, right? We all make mistakes and we need to know that even though we make poor choices, God can still use those in his plan, in his love for us. When it comes to marriage, the Apostle Paul said uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Don't hitch yourself to, to the wrong star. Don't team up with unbelievers. How can light live with darkness it's a mistake to, live, to, to marry outside the faith. But again, every single one of us in this room, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. And isn't it amazing that God still loves us? That he can still work out his purpose in our lives and bring some good stuff 
out of some pretty bad choices. And again, I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Now let's skip on down to verse 4. They married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, come on. This is a woman of God. She's trying to do the right thing in her life to take care of her family. And she's got to wonder, why now? God, why all of this coming down upon me now? But rather than focus on who's lost, focus on who remains. I've done a lot of funerals through the years. In fact, I've done more funerals than I've done weddings here and at the other churches I've served at. And every funeral I do, the message, it's for the living. Well, we can celebrate the life of the person well-lived. But my message is for those that are still here and alive. Who's still left? It's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And they're in a tough spot. And these three women are now existing in what was then a man's world. They had to question God. They had to wonder, God, why did this happen? Why my husband? Why both my sons? God, don't you care? Don't you see my need and truth be known? We ask those questions. And God's got broad shoulders, and it's okay to ask questions like that. Knowing that God will forgive our, our bad choices, he'll forgive us our sins. You know, there's some things that, that I have to remind my daughters of all the time, and that is that God will forgive you. He'll forgive your sins, and yet sometimes we still live with the consequences of those sins. My sins, they don't, they don't define my present, they don't define my future. But sometimes the circumstances are still there to deal with every day. Isn't that true? You might make some bad decisions, a poor choice. In fact, how many of you have ever been on a lane, on a freeway, on a highway, like in Chicago, big city? Cheryl and I used to live in Deerfield, Illinois, which is on the north side of the city. And any time you, know, you wanted to go through the city, six lanes of traffic you know, going one direction... And even though we knew Chicago, I really didn't know Chicago, okay? And uh, we would always go, at, it seemed at the worst time, I don't know if there's a good time to travel on the expressway, but we were in the right-hand lane looking for our exit, and the traffic was just almost at a dead stop. I mean, if we were traveling five miles an hour, we were lucky. But here we are creeping along, and I look over, and in this far, far lane, people are flying by. And they have these special express lanes set up. And I thought, if I could just get from here to there, I'm going to be all right. And so I put my turn signal on, and I start to inch over, making a lot of friends on the way as I go over to the last lane, you know, honking at me. I get there, and I take off. I mean, 50, 60 miles an hour, finally getting my foot off the brake and on the gas. And it feels so good. And I'm waving to the people, yeah, you guys just sit there. I'm moving on. And as I'm driving in this high-speed express lane, I look over, and there's my exit. <laughs> and I just drove past it. And again, I know Chicago, but I really don't know Chicago. And now I've got to go to the next exit, which is about five miles beyond my exit, inch my way back over, apologizing to the people that I just passed, to get to a right lane, turn around, go the opposite way on the expressway, and it takes a whole lot more time to get where I'm going when I thought 
It was a good choice and a good shortcut. Don't we do that in life so many times? We make choices because we think it's the right way. We think things are going to work out better for us. But it costs us time and frustration and energy. And one of the things I love about God's word, one of the things I love about the people, real people in the Bible is, they often wind up in the wrong lane. And they're not able to take their exit. And oftentimes, as you and I wind up in the wrong lanes, we need to, to know that God works with us as he worked with Jonah. That God reaches for us as he did the prodigal son. Hello? People like David, who was in the wrong lane, take a shortcut. And in doing so, they rush ahead of God. And not only does it cost them time, it costs them a whole lot more. And friends, I just want to say, one of the beauties of being able to worship every Sunday is we get to recognize the leadership, the counsel, the goodness of God. We get to repent here of the times we get ahead of God because if you're living ahead of God, it's going to cost you. Sometimes it'll cost you a job. Sometimes it'll cost you a relationship. Sometimes it'll cost you your marriage or your family whenever we get ahead of God. But something we need to do and I want you to know, it's, as long as God gives us a breath, it's never too late to do. Just turn around. Understand, God allows U-turns, and we need to make a decision to turn in the right direction, and it's not too late. In fact, you can even read what God does for us in the weeping prophet Jeremiah's words in Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. It's because of God's great love. Some versions say His covenant love or His unending love we're not consumed because his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You wake up and God says, you know what? Hey, Bill, my mercies, they're brand new for you today. Let's change directions. Bill, my love for you is still there. And, and I want to make those kind of decisions with my life. And I pray you want to make those with your life too because God wants to work for his glory and your good. Here's the third thing. God works through our significant choices. He promises to be there in our significant choices. Every decision we make starts in the same place, doesn't it? Right up here. It starts in our mind. Colossians 3 verse 2 says this, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. See, your thoughts lead to choices, and sometimes your mind's just in the wrong place. Sometimes my thoughts are just too negative, too focused on the what-ifs instead of on the God of possibilities. And for the lives of people that surround me, I need to do that. Let's pick it up again, back in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food to them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back into the land of Judah. Now, I want you to see the grace that she has for these girls. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, verse 8, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. She's saying to them, you, you're not obligated to me. 
You've done everything that I could hope a daughter-in-law would do, but it's okay. Go back to your homes. Find new husbands there. You've got a life there. You've got family there. If you go with me, there's no guarantee of husbands. There's no guarantee of a, of a future with me if you pack everything up and come with me. And the story goes on after she kisses them goodbye. Verse 10, and said to them, they said, we will go back with you to your people. And Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait around until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. She gives them the chance to just, just go home, start a new life, look for new blessings. Allow God to be in the midst of it. See, this is a huge decision these girls are making. What they don't understand and what even Naomi doesn't see at the time is that God is in the midst of their decision. God is in the mix, and God wants to be in the middle of your decisions today as well. He wants to be involved in the little things because nothing is too small, too petty to bring before God. Allow God to be in the midst of those decisions. And then Ruth stays in her decision to cling to God. And we find her in that godly lineage as we get into the New Testament ultimately. But look what she says. Verse 16, Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Why? Ruth, why do you want to stay with her at this point? Well, the scripture doesn't give us the details there. But I imagine there was something about Naomi's life that sparked her interest. One thing is true, friends. If you're authentic, people know it. If you're for real, people know that your faith is real. And I'll bet you Naomi talked about how God had preserved Israel. I'll bet you she mentioned names like Moses and how God had taken care of Moses and, and the people in the desert. I bet she talked about Joshua. I bet she talked maybe about Joseph in the Old Testament, all the way from being thrown down into a cistern or into a jail to being the second in command over all of Egypt. I'll bet you she watched her life and saw how God took care of Naomi. And now it's not the multiplicity of gods that's, that's calling for Ruth's heart to go back to Moab. She says, Naomi, I want what you got. I want your God to be my God. And that decision changed everything for her and for us. Now, let me wrap this up. We're out of time this morning. I want to give you three things that are, I think, practical lessons from this. Put these in your pocket. Take them with you for the, today or, or tomorrow. The first one is this. Human connections can often lead to eternal connections with God. Human connections can often lead 
to eternal connections with God. God wants to use our imperfect lives for his perfect plan. Again, I really love the assertion in verse 18 that when Naomi realized Ruth, she was determined to go with her, that she stopped urging her. It says to me again that if you're false, if you're just putting on the mask and you're playing the game of being a Christian, people, they're going to be turned away by that. They're going to know that. Naomi had that authentic faith that opened up the life and relationship that Ruth needed with God. And she recognized it. The second thing I want you to walk away with is this. Choice, not chance, determines your eternal life. Eternal life is a choice. It's not chance. You're going to make some choices today, this weekend, in the coming year. And there are appointments in which you can glorify God in those choices. Or you can choose not. Are you going to lift him up? Or are you going to minimize God's time on your life? Here's lesson number three. How you handle adversity will detract or attract you, not just others, to faith in Christ. How you handle adversity. Maybe you don't want to hear this this morning. It's not a great thing to hear from a preacher. But whether it's this summer or this fall or next year, you're going to have some tough times. And how you react to those tough times will show people what you're made of. Christians, how you react in adverse conditions is going to show people the boldness, the courage, the strength, the testing ability of your faith. And it's either going to push people away from him or it's going to attract them to him and do the same thing for you. If you pray for a stronger faith, if like the father of the New Testament you have unbelief in your life and you say Lord I believe in you help me in my unbelief then on that spiritual journey God will strengthen you he'll fortify your prayers he'll fortify your daily conversations and life and you will draw closer to him and whether it's your children or your co-workers or people you've never met before friends people are watching you they're seeing what you post on Facebook They're seeing what you post on Twitter or on Instagram or Snapchat. And there are times that I will just glance at those things and I'll see some things that people post and and I'll say, why? Why would you ever put that out? You're, You're a brother or a sister in Christ. We go to the same church together. I'm reading it. Other people are reading it. Is this really how you want to portray Christ to the world? And before you post anything, are you attracting people to Jesus? Or is what you're saying pushing them away? Be careful, little fingers, what you post. Allow your faith in God, allow your trust in Him to do what it does in Ruth. Let it shine through. Let it shine through arguments. Let it shine through tragedy. Let it shine through questioning. Let it shine through your, through your athletics or your leisure time, let it, let it shine in all things. Jesus said it best, as he always did, in John 12, 32, speaking of his cross, and when I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. Friends, that's why we're here. That's why this church is here. We're to lift up Christ crucified, but Christ resurrected in our worship, in our prayers, in our giving, in our service, in our devotion.
And so it's appropriate that we end our time together in a time of decision. God, I'm going to make some choices this morning. Some are going to be tough choices. Some are going to be the wrong choice. Some are going to be significant choices, but God, you're going to be there with me through it all. And I pray for wisdom. I pray for guidance. But above it all, I pray for you to be honored. Would you stand with me this morning? And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that that passage, the words that Ruth spoke, they're really the words that that we hear at weddings a lot. I'll, I'll stay with you. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. But they're great words for us. In fact, some people in this room, they they don't feel like they have a people. (laughs) They feel isolated. They feel that most of the people they know, they they couldn't really call them friends. They're more like acquaintances or neighbors that they've never gone below the surface with. And who would be there for them if they really needed help? But God, I pray through your word and through our exposure to your spirit, we recognize that whether we're reading about Ruth or Naomi, whether we're reading about even the life that you gave for us, that we would say, I, I, I want your God to be my God. As we look in Scripture and see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just praying, my God, my God. Father, we want his cry to be ours, that we're not forsaken that you love us with a tenacious, a ferocious, and sometimes a crazy love. Father, I ask that you be in our choices and our decisions, that you draw us closer to you, that you help this church become one in heart and mind and purpose, that you help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, that you are our God that you loved us so much, you gave your one and only son, that if we would believe in you, we would never perish, but have eternal life. So in this moment, for anyone that has a decision to make, Lord, help them to put on the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Dress us all in in the cologne or the perfume of the saved so that others can take notice and want what we have. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Savior is way